Right, good morning, everyone. Welcome to COVID Chat, where we talk about the tangential and contiguous issues surrounding the SARS-CoV-2, otherwise known as the COVID-19 virus. This is the only place where we can have an unfiltered and uncensored conversation about the impacts of the pandemic. I'm your host, Mario M. Christie. And I'm your host, Eleanor Terrellong. We are now living in Corona time. And the only way our nation can ensure, ensure survival is for us to get, get with, the, with program. the program. I have to work on that. <laughs> <laughs> COVID-19 isn't going anywhere. It will be a defining factor in our lives and livelihoods for the foreseeable future. Though a critical public health concern, COVID-19 is not just a public health issue. It is a social, economic, and environmental issue. COVID Chat is a program that will delve into all the issues and impacts caused by the COVID-19 pandemic, as well as our national response. How will we address our national and, sustainable and global sustainability needs during this time? This initiative is powered by the Jamaica Climate Change Youth Council. We're a youth affiliate of the Jamaica Climate Change Advisory Board, and this is in partnership with Environmental Solutions Limited, which is the Caribbean's leading environmental consultancy firm. We want to welcome everyone to the discussion and thank you for joining. Please share with us on social media using the hashtags COVIDChat, CoronaTime, and Environmental Sustainability. Don't forget to follow us on social media. We're at OurFootprintJA on Twitter and Instagram. Um, for ESL, it's ESL Caribbean on Twitter and Envirosol on Instagram. Just to remind you that this conversation is being recorded and you want to stay all the way to the very end because we have a special announcement to make today. Today is the second of a series of seven chats. We're continuing from the first chat where we spoke about the different ways the COVID-19 pandemic affects society and sustainability goals and how the issues from the COVID-19 intersect with the issues created by climate change. In our last chat, we touched on issues including economic stability, food security, business sustainability, and other social issues such as personal responsibility vis-a-vis -vis impact. This week, our focus will be on COVID-19, climate change, and the environment. We'll be interrogating the position of many environmental advocates and activists that the earth is better off without us. As such, the focus of today's discussion will be on the direct environmental impacts that we have seen due to the changes in global movement and business operations in response to COVID-19. We want to highlight the lessons we can learn in order to ensure environmental sustainability going forward into our new normal. All right, so in order to have an informed conversation, today we have three special guests with us. These are three people who have been doing stellar work in advancing the environmental agenda, both here in Jamaica and across the Caribbean. First, we have Mrs. Eleanor Jones, OD. She's the chairman and CEO of Environmental Solutions Limited. Good morning, Mrs. Jones. Next, we have Nikita Shilroll. She's the founder and CEO of Young Marine Explorers in Cat Island, which is in the Bahamas. And we have Dr. Peter Edwards, who is an environmental economist, marine scientist, and policy analyst who is affiliated with the Jamaica Institute of Environmental Professionals. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here to share and to learn. 
All right. So we're just going to ask you to share with our audience a little bit about what you do so they have get an idea of who you are and the work that you're doing. And we're going to start with Mrs. Jones. Um, okay. I am Eleanor Jones. I have been involved with environmental management for many years. Um, I started my career as a lecturer at UWI in the Department of Geography and working with the impact of environmental factors or working with the impact of geographical factors, I came to understand that environmental management was, was just key to us trying to, to ensure that we had our life support systems remaining. And environmental management, as we will be talking more about, is about the management of people because environmental systems are natural systems, they manage themselves. And so from the university, I started um, having worked in disaster risk management, seeing what natural hazards could do. I started an environmental consultancy, which has, which has morphed into environmental solutions, which is 29 years old. We are in our 30th year. So we launched on Earth Day in 1991, and we're very proud of the fact that we've been able to contribute across the Caribbean mm -hmm. and also contribute to the development of a cadre of environmental professionals who are themselves working in many different parts of the Caribbean and here in Jamaica also. Thank you, Mrs. Jones. Nikita, are you here? Yes, I'm here. Welcome. Thank you. Can you tell us just a little bit about what you and your organization do? Sure. Wonderful. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's so so great to be part of a regional conversation uh, that is so important. So thank you for creating this space for us to continue this dialogue online. Uh, for all who are listening, uh, my name is Nikita Shiel Roll. I am the founder and CEO of Young Marine Explorers and also now uh, the newly established Cat Island Conservation Institute. And my work focuses on driving climate action, specifically for those of of us who live on uh, tiny islands within large ocean nations and uh, concretely what this looks like is engaging youth and community members in community science where we're training community scientists to engage in uh, resource management and really building capacity within our local communities to ensure that we are able to uh, build the necessary island resilience that we need in order to survive the climate crisis that we're living in and also to uh, establish new and alternative sustainable livelihood so that we can live in harmony with nature. Thank you Nikita and last but definitely not least Dr. Edwards could you just give us a quick overview of the type of work that you do? Okay, I was trying to unmute myself. Good afternoon or good morning, because I guess it's um, 11 o'clock in some parts of the world. Um, thank you for giving me the opportunity to share this August panel. Um, um, my name is Peter Edwards. I am a Jamaican environmental scientist, marine scientist, and um, environmental economist. And, um, you know, as Mrs. Jones just mentioned, um, I started my career with environmental solutions um, in 1994, so I guess three years or so after the opening. So I was one of those early set of people 
who um, benefited from the, the kind of guidance and, and training from Mrs. Jones and Dr. Barry Wade, who's no longer with us, and, and many others. Um, and then I you know, went back to UWI, did a master's degree in marine sciences and ended up at UWI for about three years working on coral reef and coastal ecosystem management um, and, and training and public advocacy. And that is where I started um, making the connection or um, realizing that there was a connection between conserving, um, you know, what we're, you know, what we, we hold there and people and the economy. And that's when I transitioned um, and I left Jamaica and came to the United States and did a terminal degree in um, marine policy, but with a focus on natural resource economics and, and environmental economics. So um, for the latter part of my career, I'd say from about 2009, I've been working on um, conservation, not just marine, but terrestrial conservation with a focus of integrating social sciences and, and people as part of the environment. So, um, and I work for an, an international um, uh, NGO conservation uh, organization and I, I currently do that work. So again, my work spans both in the ocean as well as on land on a variety of issues from seabed mining to um, overfishing and so on. Um, I was happy to be part of the conversation and I'm, I'm here as a member of the diaspora and representing the Jamaica Institute of Environmental Professionals, of course, with, with, with Ella, Mrs. Jones is also um, probably like one of those lifetime members or emeritus or something. Uh, so that, that's my position here. I'm not speaking on behalf of any other organization I be, might be affiliated with. Hey, thank you all for that. Um, very, very good work you all have been doing, very um, cross-cutting in nature. And we are, I can say unreservedly that um, we have made a good choice in asking you all to participate in this conversation. And thank you again all for accepting our invitation. Um, very good work you all are doing in advance, advancing the environmental agenda. So to all our guests um, on the chat today, remember this is an interactive conversation. So we encourage you all to join in with comments and ask questions by either typing directly into the chat box or using the raise hand feature um, that's a part of the chat bar in the Zoom app. Remember, um, just to keep the questions and comments short and spicy so we can hear from everyone who wants to speak. All right, so let's dive in. As we all know, today is World Environment Day and this year's theme is Time for Nature. Now the COVID-19 stay-at-home orders drastically reduce transportation, both air travel and underground worldwide, and also reduce some sorts of economic activities, for example, the manufacturing industries or some of the fishing industries. A study published in May 2020 found that the daily global carbon emissions during the lockdown measures in April fell by 17% and could lead to an annual carbon emissions decline of up to 7%, which would be the biggest drop since World War II, according to the paper. There's also anecdotal evidence of more fish appearing in streams. Um, you have seen animals such as sea turtles that have been laying eggs on beaches that were previously um, you know, previously interfered with by humans and pollution. So we see sort of the um, environment and biodiversity sort of repairing or renewing itself during the lockdown measures. Um, so based on this is really why we've chosen the theme for today to be, is the earth really better without us? So based on these observations, we're going to pose this question to all three of our guests. 
do you agree that the earth really is better off if we stay inside? Are we as humans the problem? And I'll start with Mrs. Jones. Um, thank you very much. Um, I think that if we stay inside, we'll create some other kinds of problems. So the reality is that we are a part of the global mix. And what we need to do is to really see how we can best live with nature because this is our life support system and the, the human species is a part of planet earth at this time as our other species so we want to learn to to coexist and i i agree the anecdotal evidence is is really very very stimulating if you if you will have i had a, a, a colleague and friend who said she lived on oxford road which is a major thoroughfare all she could ever hear for um, motor vehicles. Now she was able to hear birds. And, and so uh, you're seeing more birds, you're seeing clearer skies and we're hearing good things. So it means that we should not stay inside, but we should ensure that when we come out, we, um, we don't go back to business as usual. That is a very important consideration. And also staying inside has some, some important considerations, which we will probably get to a little later on. All right, thank you. Nikita, are we as humans the problem? What do you think? Uh, thank you. This is a great question. So I think what is important to remember is that we are part of nature. So we can't separate ourselves uh, from the trees or the fish, and I believe this is at the heart of the problem. And this is where we have to, as a world, return to a remembering of the fact that we are part of the, the collective ecosystems, the global ecosystem. Uh, and we now, and I think what COVID-19, when so many of us were locked inside our homes, what we realized is we had a moment to notice. We had a moment to notice nature that we had been so busy and preoccupied with our lives that uh, we hadn't normally been taking into account. Now, 100% uh, humans have had uh, extremely destructive lifestyle and we continue to lead that. And if anything, uh, what we can take away from this COVID-19 moment is that there is great hope for us because if we were able to reduce the CO2 emissions as you shared by 17% and that if this trend suggests that there could be a 7% decline, uh, this shows how significant changing our actions can be to the health and well-being of our planet and so now we have to be extremely intentional as so many of our our countries are starting to reopen that we chart a new course forward that is grounded and really uses the un sustainable development goals as the backbone of that so yes we are part of the problem that's causing all this damage in the world and we also because we are the minds that created the damage. We also get to be the minds that create the solution. Thank you, I like that. Um, Dr. Edwards, your perspective on the same question, are we as humans the problem? Dr. Edwards? I think he's having some trouble on me again. Oh. It says yes, the host. Oh, the, yeah. It was saying the host has muted me. Um, so it, it's hard coming after the, 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 my two very esteemed colleagues because I agree. 
100% with um, everything that they've said. We, we are humans and, and our patterns of consumption and how we use the land and how we interact with nature are a major um, cause of what we're seeing today. And of course, you know, if you think about the issue of the pandemic, um, you know, it, or the, the, our relationship with our consumption of, of animals and perhaps our relationship with um, encroachment into natural habitats where species are um, containing diseases, which allow that to jump to us. That um, is, is ostensibly the root cause of the, the pandemic, pandemic today and, and quite likely of pandemics in the past. So humans and our consumption patterns are definitely the reason why we are, you know, in the position we are today. However, you know, you know because we've been forced in large measure to stay at home and if, because we've been forced to kind of reduce our activity, we've been seeing these, you know, these immediate um, changes. However, there's caution that while we're seeing these decreases now, once everything quote unquote goes back to normal, we, we might be in danger of, of kind of running past the current levels to catch up back to where, our, our, where we were before because of kind of continuing on the same path. I think what the pandemic has caused and um, certainly for those of us who have the luxury of kind of being able to work from home and sitting down and thinking about things a little bit more, it gives us a chance to think and reset and, um, and think about how we can do things differently. Um, we're still going to need to get from place to place. We're still going to need to, you know, function. We're still going to need to eat food. But I think it, it gives us a chance to think um, intentionally about how do we change our transportation systems to um, better move people cleaner so that you can hear the birds while kind of going down the road in an electric bus. How can we address um, how we consume things um, and grow them more sustainably um, so that the world actually the, the real concept of sustainable growth and sustainable use of our resources is um, put, put center. And I apologize, I'm at home and I have a toddler, so I may or may not have to go on mute because they might be shouting in the background. No problem. All right, so thank you. That, that's, I think that's a great way from all, from all three of our guests to sort of kick off the discussion. And coming out of that, I have this question for Mrs. Jones. What can we learn from the changes that we've seen in the environment um, since COVID? And are we actually hopeful that these changes are significant and sustainable, or are we really just going to go back to what life was before COVID? I think we have to be more than hopeful. We have to be specific in, in, in what we do. Um, the, the, the lessons that we're learning are, are very telling. And as young professionals, and I'm, I'm just delighted to be participating with you all, you're gonna be carrying the torch even further. We have to find the message to speak to those who would be just ready to go back. Let's open up, let's, let's get back as quickly as possible. We have to get this message out. We have to get people to understand this 17% drop, that is a significant statement. But we're, as, as, as Peter has indicated, we have to eat, we have to get from place to place. Um, the reality of our, of our, our living is, is important. So how do we live sustainably? So in short, I would say what we have now is not sustainable if we simply go back to business as usual. But we have an opportunity to get the word out. And I think there's a thing called the teachable moment. And I believe that this is a teachable moment. So it rests with us, those of us who have 
the opportunity to get onto these um, different wavelengths, understanding we can't hit people over the head, but we have to speak a language that they understand and really coach it around what's in it for me? How can I personally benefit? How can my family benefit? And I believe that if we focus on environmental health, we focus on the health of the environment as well as the health of human beings as we interact, then that is a, a hook. Um, and, and, and this pandemic, I, I, I just perhaps need to go back to the, to the, right now we're talking about, I can't breathe. This is the, the mantra and it's coming out of the, the, the terrible situation that we witnessed in, in the United States. But if we think when we come into this world, we're given the breath. We, we emerge from the womb and the first thing they do is try to get that baby to breathe. So the breath is significant. When we leave this earth, the breath is taken away. So while we are here, the breathing becomes important. What is it about this environment that is, that, that is significant to our breathing? And breath is the foundation of life. So if we think I can't breathe, the time for nature, which is the theme for for, the, for this, we, we need to begin to think about that and to use these messages as hooks to garner attention as to why we need to move on a different path. Thank you. And Dr. Edwards, how do you think we can use this time of social isolation and reduced movement as really an opportunity for environmental rescue? And what kind of you know, direct restorative actions can we actually take to make the most of these type of opportunities? So what can we do on the ground during this time? It keeps, whenever I put myself on mute, um, it says the host has muted me. Um, so, uh, could you repeat the last part of the question? Apologies. Sure. Um, we're asking what sort of direct restorative action or underground activities can we use to make the most of this opportunity when it comes to environmental rescue? Um, so, I think, you know, we're framing this in the context of um, World Environment Day. And I, I think, you know, the restorative activities really kind of cut across every single thing we do, every line of um, kind of industrial activity. And if we want to keep it focused on Jamaica and, and of course the Caribbean, you know, the things that we rely on and the way that we, we, we conduct it, for example, tourism, which is one of our major economic earners, and the type of tourism that we've relied on for so long, which is, you know, coastal in nature, very focused on sun, sea and sand, very, very reliant on moving large numbers of people from other places and, and housing them in, in, in kind of big hotels on the coast. We have seen that, you know, you know, tourism industry crash because, you know, people can't travel because, you know, it's deleterious to their health. Um, so COVID has really kind of, um, is almost an interesting proxy for what the slow nature of clim climate change and how it affects different communities differently. We've seen the, the most vulnerable of us in society are, are most affected. So I think the restorative actions really begins at every single way we, we do business. Um, I wrote um, along with the Jamaica Institute of Environmental Professionals an article a few weeks ago in the, in the paper about um, in the issue of COVID and its links to the environment. And really and truly, while things like 
COVID-19 or, or, or the coronavirus spread as well as climate change are largely kind of a global issue and we, you know we're kind of managing to deal with it there are ways that Jamaica and the Caribbean can make ourselves more resilient um, to these to these external shocks like you know you know we spoke about it before you know sustainable approaches to agriculture from the field to kind of post-processing so we're not you know we're storing our food safely and when we have these shocks we can feed our most vulnerable people thinking different ways about tourism mrs jones was, was um and, and many others were part of a big sustainable tourism master plan for the south coast that had a different model more smaller more boutique that might lend itself to you know smaller groups of people being able to travel and stay in the discrete locations and perhaps providing a similar level of um, economic input without depending on a large number of people gathered together um, and you know the way we deal with our waste um, you know Riverton City um, when we're when we stress our lungs with, with air pollution and then you overlay on top of that a disease that affects the lungs you have another issue the way we do our mining um, better ways to improve that so I think there are ways to slightly shift what we're currently doing now um, to make sure that we can withstand the shocks and um, and you know and of course restoring our damaged kind of coastal environment, restoring our mangroves so that we can withstand these shocks. Those are all a part of things that we can start doing now rather than kind of um, coming up with some fancy new solutions that won't necessarily matter in the short term. Thank you. I, li I like the idea of using um, existing solutions and sort of just adapting it to our current situation as opposed to, you know, really like reinventing the wheel. Um, but coming off of that, Nikita, you spoke a lot about um, how you engage young people and citizen scientists. So are there ways that um, ordinary citizens can be involved in this type of response? And how exactly can we encourage ordinary citizens to sort of be invested in this and take part in that? Thank you, Eleanor. Uh, so what I am working on right now, and because uh, the original conversation that was just had by the two other presenters, they both spoke to the impacts of COVID-19. And Dr. Edwards also uh, just highlighted the economic challenges for those of us in the region, especially for the countries who are heavily dependent on tourism, like the Bahamas. I know in Jamaica, you have a lot more, I would say, agriculture and manufacturing and other alternatives than we have in the Bahamas. And so the impact of COVID has been dire for us. And it really has shone a light on our dependence on, um, on tourism and how, as we continue in this climate crisis, uh, and the, the state of the world right now, that we must identify alternative paths for Bahamians, and I think this is by extension also the region. And I, I share this backstory because in order for us to really chart our way forward, I believe it's very uh, critical for us to really understand how we ended up in this position in the first place. And that speaks to our history and the colonial history of the Caribbean. And in the Bahamas in the very early years, in the 1960s, our prime minister was leading the charge with tourism ahead of many of the other Caribbean islands, uh, which is how um, our industry and our economy has been very successful. Uh, but it's been successful in, in a, on a one-track path. 
And so now what I believe is needed for, for the entire region is, but is for us to develop a new connection and a new relationship with the environment. And so what we are seeing uh, specifically in the Bahamas, our education has been reflective of training Bahamians to enter into the service industry. And because of that, uh, we have many, part of I think one of the challenges that we had in um, our independence was when many of the British left, we, there were many gaps left in the country. And that has had serious impacts on our education system. And so now what we are seeing is that in light of COVID-19, where there's been a pause on tourism, you know, we had 30% unemployment. And there are many Bahamians who do not have the skills to be able to transfer into alternative industries. And so when we talk about engaging citizens in science, what's really important for me is that while I had the privilege of leaving the country and being educated uh, in both the Canada, the United States, and uh, Scotland, we cannot be uh, develop a robust, robust, robust economies throughout the region if we are depending on our citizens to leave the country to be educated. And so I think this also requires us to reconsider and reflect on what uh, the value of science, how we have been using science to drive uh, conservation resource management, and how that narrative has to change. Because historically in the Bahamas, it has been foreigners who have the PhDs and the experts come into the country. And they have really been, for the, the major part of it, guiding and influencing our conservation and natural resource management. And this needs to shift because one, uh, Bahamians and by extension others throughout the region, we need to understand our relationship with the environment and how, because everything is relation, whether you are in relation with another person, whether we are in relation with a tree, the tree uh, provides the oxygen that we breathe, we breathe it in, we release it, and that's carbon dioxide that goes out that the tree takes in. So there are relationships that exist. And what I believe the value of science is, is that science helps us understand these relationships. And so the work that I do, and I know this was a bit of a long-winded way to answer you, but I want to make sure that this point is clear, is that there are what people often refer to as citizen science, uh, which in the, the field we, we refer to as public science, is very much a top-down approach where the methodologies have been designed by a scientist or an external body, and we're engaging the public in the acquisition of information about our environment. And that is a very important and valuable tool, and it will, and is part of the work that I do. Um, and, and also, I believe that there is another path, and this is the work of community science. Because so often in our colonial history, we, value the external researcher, the external person more than we value ourselves. And this has led to us dismissing the voices and needs of our community members. And especially in a country like the Bahamas, where we, we really are an ocean nation, where we have islands scattered all throughout um, our, our, our body of water, uh, we have tiny islands like the island that I live on, it's a very remote island, that the members of my community's voices aren't being heard. And the members in my community are the ones who are 100% dependent on the natural resources. You know, because we don't have the law firms here. I mean, we are crabbers and fishers and farmers, 
and so it's about how do we make sure that the members of my community, or by extension, the members of the community all throughout the Caribbean, understand the importance of and their relationship to the environment that they live in. And so with my, the final point is through a mix of both public science and community science, uh, the work of the Cat Island Conservation Institute right now is to develop a new career path for both Bahamians and also by extension those in the region of becoming a community scientist, where you do not have to go and get a master's and PhD to be out in the field working along with me, studying and understanding the health of our coral reefs or the mangroves or in a terrestrial ecosystem. And I believe that by creating a career path through um, that directly relates to natural resource management and conservation and understanding and helping um, us understand where are we, what is, what, where are we, how are we threatened, what can we do on island, do we need to restore existing mangrove ecosystems, do we need to restore, uh, restore coral reefs because this impacts us. So my work is really about how do we engage, eliminating that barrier to entry where I can engage a high school student, someone who was kicked out of high school and is 60 years old, is really interested in this work, uh, who, and maybe he's a fisherman, or um, a college or university student in the scientific process of understanding the environment that we live in and then creating the solutions for that. Mm -hmm. All right, okay, Eleanor, uh, before, before, before you, you move on, on Nikita's point, um, I love it. It's, it's something I think about daily in terms of how we actually get people to participate in what we are trying to do. But um, what I was kind of listening out for that I didn't hear, and I hope um, you'll be able to comment on it, is about institutionalizing um, the kind of work that we do as um, climate and environmental advocates and activists. Because I don't get a sense that we kind of, we, we actively seek to engender the kinds of attitudes that we want people to have as it relates to how we approach environmental issues. So if you talk about a lot of persons, if you talk to a lot of persons who probably have occupation or training in business or economics, they, they don't see the value of this kind of thing, right? A lot of persons don't. And we said, we, we, I think we belabored this point in the first chat, that a lot of persons really don't value the environment or they don't know of the value of the environment. So if, if we should look towards bringing this, kind of work into our um, school curriculum? Do you think, one, it would be a welcome um, idea, and two, do you think it will have the kind of impact that you, you just talked about? Perhaps Mrs. Jones can tell you about her long work on mainstreaming environmental um, <laughs> yes, just, in yes. kind of across all yeah. society, both education, government, she, and she, private sector. Yes, I, I, and I, and I, I, I wanted to... I will confess that my question is because of Mrs. Jones. <laughs> she has, I, I want. She has, I um, wanted to. Sorry, Mario. I, I wanted to come in after Nikita. Nikita, because of that that your comments were just so spot on, and I I really like the concept of the community scientists um, and 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 the points that you've made where we talk down to people, and there's so much that we can learn. From, from our community members. One of the things I have noticed, and I don't know if, if the rest of you have noticed, when you listen to all the discussion about the pandemic, 
the, the, we are hearing for the first time a lot of people talking about the reliance on science. We need to rely on the science. I've heard the term science used so many times, whereas before it, it, it was just something that belonged to, to other people. So using the scientific method, using the, the information in a way that community people can themselves understand we are contributing to this. We live with it. We know it. We understand it. Um, bring us in. And I think that that, that is a low-hanging fruit that um, we're talking about teachable moments. What, what, can you imagine you begin to, to, um, to talk to people? I, I remember we were doing a, an assignment with the Kingston Harbor and the fisher folk said, oh yes, you people, you call yourself scientists, but we are scientists too. And, and maybe you have some fancy things that you can measure depth and, and measure the dispersion of, of dredge. But when we plumb, we know what we are doing. So we too are scientists and they were very strong about that. So I, I think that point is just so well taken. And I think I'd like to add that those of us working in this space, um, and certainly an organization like JIEP, core kind of remit is to really push for the inclusion of science and kind of proper you know analysis into decision making you know we, we, we've often run up against a wall we could do the best science in the world including incorporating traditional local knowledge and and people on the ground but when the people with the power and the budgets take the information very often the decisions are political or kind of very um, near term economic related and tend to ignore the science. And I think some of our, our, our citizens see that kind of direction coming from the top and get um, disheartened that, you know, the right decisions aren't being made because we aren't incorporating all of the different forms of science that are, that are important for decision making. But again, perhaps know that we've been shut inside and know that we've been hearing that, um, you know, we need more science and science to kind of guide decision making. It is another chance for us to really kind of use the opportunity to, to lay, lay out these different paths of, of sustainable interaction with our, our tropical and Caribbean environment so that we or all our people can benefit and not in many cases just people at the top who can grab slices and, and monetize it. Absolutely and I you know the, the question was about institutionalizing and we we need to when we look at our education, I think we have to ask ourselves, what are we educating our children, our youth, our citizens for? What is the objective? And I think a lot we, uh, we can learn from what has gone wrong or what hasn't really worked in our favor from the past and a way for us to transform education now going forward. And absolutely, climate education, marine education, especially for those of us in the region. And now more than ever, we, and, and especially I think COVID-19 has set the stage where we, we now work on Zoom all the time. You know, our children are all used to working and doing schoolwork online. And so now we have to use this connectivity at, together to really unify our region because at the end of the day, we are all at the same risk. Our islands are all either going to be sinking or going to be taken off by hurricanes. And I believe we have an opportunity to, to, to really uh, redirect what the future looks like for us. And this requires institutionalizing uh, education. But then also when we talk about community science, 
what has been missing, and again, I believe a lot of this comes out of our colonial past, is that the voices of community members have not been at the decision-making table. And also their needs have not been present. And I think the power of community science is it allows community, community members to use their voice to speak their needs and in a language that our policymakers and our decision makers understand. Because this has been the problem is that our, many of our community members have not been able to speak the language that uh, our policymakers and decision makers use. And because of that, we, they've been dismissed and, they, and we cannot afford to dismiss our community members especially because the elders in our community, the indigenous peoples within our community, they have an understanding of our planet. They have an understanding of nature that as uh, formerly Western trained, you know, conservation scientists, we don't. And I can give a perfect example. I was out with a friend of mine who's a fisherman and he was teaching me about the, the moon and the tides, which of course I learned a theory in school uh but as he was explaining this to me he was just like aren't you a marine scientist why don't didn't they teach you this and i was just like yes i mean i learned it but what you understand is an embodied innate knowing that when it's a full moon at night the tide is high or that the fish will bite at the high tide or the lowing tide depending on the, spe the species you know or 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 and we don't learn that in our classrooms in the books and this is why i think it's time for us to reimagine what education looks like take all the good from the universities and the ivory towers but let's put this in a culturally relative context that allows our region to thrive yeah, and I'd, I'd like to say in terms of you know, i know we, we were talking about solution before and you know i you know, i think I, I touched on it in that article that we wrote but simple thing like agriculture and this is a perfect um, example where you can blend kind of traditional knowledge with kind of more modern approaches you know we've we've in our region we tend to see farming and agriculture as a, a man or a woman wearing water boots and kind of with a cutlass in his hand agricultural science is much more than that and you know i think while we we are definitely reliant on our tourism product and it's very important and we we need to think about ways of shifting and, and diversifying that product we still need to feed ourselves we still need to beyond feeding ourselves we need to come up with ways to produce things more sustainably and that marriage of traditional with with um with science you know this is where instead of training all of our people to come up with mbas and, and work on kind of passing paper and, and money we we should be really getting back to training a bunch of people who can you know work on pesticide integrated pesticide management um crop technology post-production technology and you know um you know on the environmental restoration side we could be training people across culture of agriculture with you know growing mangrove seedlings forestry and so on really creating jobs and opportunities of restoring nature that will then again turn in turn provide us with sustenance and, and keep us safe um, so I mean there's there are lots of ways that we need to kind of rethink on our educational system and the kinds of jobs that we kind of quote unquote traditionally rely on and really broaden that scope so that we can um, can can diversify our economic um, opportunities and also more importantly places like Bahamas that might be limited in terms of land space really work on this thing called Caribbean integration and allowing us professionals to move around and 
and, and provide the skills and lend the skills where necessary so that we can all benefit rather than um, being kind of, you know, limited to our own small pieces of, of our individual rocks. Thank you. And I just wanted to add a little personal anecdote. Um, to it when we're talking about science and citizen science. My father, who is actually on this call, he's a farmer and he's also a scientist. And he taught me a lot about um, the marriage between science, traditional science per se, and underground. And I think that we as maybe trained or educated scientists don't really have an appreciation of how much people underground understand the same science that we're learning in school, but in a more practical way. Um, so hi, daddy. Um, so, Second, we have a question in our chat and I just wanted to remind everybody that this is an interactive conversation. You can chime in at any time, whether you want to put your question in the chat or you want to raise your hand and you want to speak to one of our guests directly. So this is from Matthew and Matthew says, we've seen that the world can respond somewhat collectively to an imminent threat, such as a severe short-term threat. But we have also seen the inability of nations to coordinate and take collective action towards what we perceive as a long-term threat. So this is a two-part question. The first part, do you have any thoughts as it relates to the likelihood of the nations arriving at a common understanding and taking a collective action in light of current economic competition and unaligned economic goals as it relates to development or sustainable development? And the second part is what role or tactics should the Caribbean region play towards achieving this sort of global collective action? So this is open to any of our panelists that want to respond. It's a serious question. Um, yes, multiple I think parts. The, the, the outlook, the immediate short or medium term outlook in terms of global cooperation is certainly um, not positive because of what's happening and because of the impact of the economies. I think there's a sense that there, there will be kind of more inward looking. Um, um, so, um, but at the same time, I know, you know, in terms of my day-to-day -day job that work on kind of global um, environmental policy is still moving forward. And I think many of the big organizations are using this moment, as, as we said before, to kind of re reiterate that it's important to think um, critically about how we interact with the environment. Um, one can hope that this, this kind of very fairly rapid global event will learn lessons from the more slow onset issue of, for, for example, climate change. Um, but, you know, I think what we've been talking about mostly is how the Caribbean region and how Caribbean nations can get together and take the lead in certainly building resilience at home and then perhaps giving some examples of how the world can operate. So I, I am always a good, um, advocate of kind of a pilot, quote unquote, pilot projects. And I think the Caribbean region, certainly CARICOM and our neighbors and friends, this is an opportunity for us, and given our vulnerability with hurricanes and tourism, to get together and think about really a way forward and, and not just giving lip service and kind of taking the lead from, you know, you know the EU or, you know, IMF and, and the World Bank. I, I, you said that, uh, that's, that's the point right there and I don't think we have as a region we have not been setting the pace of what climate adaptation looks like or even on climate uh, mitigation and I say adaptation because one there's the reality that we have to survive and if we don't figure out a way to survive we will all be dead it really is just that simple and it's it's harsh 
it's a harsh reality that we have to accept. And I think for those of us who do understand that connection, um, this is why we do the work that we do. However, I think it's important to note that because the global narrative has been led and dominated by the, the global north, our voices, our needs, our priorities are not being heard and are not at the forefront. And so now when, we, when the question is asked, um, the, for the first part of the question uh, relating to, sorry, I'm reading this again. So what I understood and what I learned from COVID-19 is the world felt the crisis. We felt the heat and the water was boiling and then so we responded. The challenge with climate change is that for so many, they don't understand what it means. It's just this foreign off notion. And right now people don't even understand the difference between climate and weather. And uh, so we, I believe as a Caribbean region, have to create a unified narrative that we all share with our independent islands, but that really when we speak globally, because what happens is yes, you have the handful of um, representation at the UN, but like I've been in these UN meetings and if we're depending on the UN to save our lives, like, you know, like a good luck, you know, and I personally, I'm turning 33 next week. I prefer to take control of how we ensure that, that I have a future and that I can maybe have children who will have a future in these islands, you know? And so I believe that it, it's really about us collectively organizing as a region and that becoming very intentional on the message that we are communicating with our community members because what we are seeing is the language that I use when I communicate with my colleagues in the UN is not the same language that I use when I talk to my community here in Cat Island and so we have to become very clear on as some may call it code switching but using the vernacular using the story that is relevant for the people that we are talking to. And I think this is where we have an opportunity as a region to really define and become crystal clear on what is our narrative, what is our story, and really the tangible action, what that looks like. Because again, while we have had a really like fuzzy story, we haven't really been very clear, especially for someone who's not in the sciences or in the environmental field, how they can meaning, meaningfully act and, and engage in driving this action. Mm -hmm. So, so we're talking about really just following on, taking charge of our vulnerability. It's our responsibility and we have to speak the language that people understand. So we, it's, it's no point, as you say, top down. And, and the way to do that is it depends on who you're talking to because at the end of the day, um, you, you, you want to, to reach those persons who are making decisions. Whether you're making decisions at the, at the top or you're making decisions for your community, the point is we need to translate some of what we've been working with into the language that people understand. Why is it important for us to, to look at building our resilience, taking charge of our vulnerability to the effects of a changing climate? What does it mean? And if we break it down, um, the community people understand that because you are and also the policy makers will understand it but right now they think it's something remote something distant and even here in jamaica while we're talking about coming out and opening up the economy and so on you don't really hear any discussion about the environmental factors and that's that's a serious 
omission. And I'm, I'm not sure that they even realize that the environmental considerations are just so very important to what we're talking about. So you've, they've, they've listed protocols, for instance, for indoor, but it's not really tied to environmental health, which is, which is something that if, when, when we begin to talk about health, it's, it's a hook that most people can relate to. And if we can find the, the, the linkages, um, that's important. And then of course, it comes back to leadership in everything. If we're gonna be leading in the Caribbean, we have to lead in our respective states. And Nikita, you, with your group, Peter, with your group, Mario, we, we lead. And then that leadership is, you, you begin to get the connectivity and you have someone out there the, the Prime Minister of Barbados, for instance, has been doing a very good job in, 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 um, in, in positioning the, the CARICOM territories. So we, we need that. We need, to, we need to move with leadership. We need to speak the language and we need to, 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 um, to really link with persons, getting them to understand we have to take charge of our vulnerability. And building off of that, if I may, Eleanor, I, this is where I believe the youth, we have a very important role to play. That's right. And I really Absolutely. want to celebrate uh, you for creating the, uh, this panel and this space to have this conversation. And I think it's an excellent start. And now we have to, we have Eleanor and I, I met Eleanor in December where UNESCO brought together youth leaders uh, to establish uh, a Caribbean climate change youth network. And I believe now is really the time for us to strategize on how we work together. And, and yes, I think there's a lot of work that needs to be led by youth. And we need to create space, just like how we have this conversation here, for this intergenerational exchange. Because we have a lot of new, uh, fresh perspectives, but then also, for example, like uh, the colleagues on this conversation today have so much more experience uh, that we can also learn from. And I think we need to have everyone's input. And really it's about creating the space for everyone to be at the table so we can do this together. Yes, I, I think I wanted to echo that. You know, Absolutely. Thank you, uh, thank you the, for the, the kind of being led by the youth, kind of bringing us together, using technology to bring us together. And this panel is, 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 is truly in, intergenerational. Uh, you know, my one of my mentors, Mrs. Jones. I'm. I, somebody mentioned young. Well, I think Mrs. Jones mentioned young people like me. I'll, I'm not. Cool, cool. I'm. I think I'm. I'm. Can we pass? Call myself young. young. At heart. That's what matters. <laughs> but but again, just to really reiterate that you know the leadership um, by by the young people is important. And and as um Nikita said, learning you can learn from what we've done. And, and some of the roadblocks that we may have faced and perhaps coming up together, we can come up with solutions to circumvent those roadblocks, certainly kind of getting policy at, at uh, kind of politicians and people with the, the purses um, to, to kind of effect change. Uh, I think I also want a, a very simple thing in terms of environmental management is space. I think, you know, somebody used the term space is a virtual space, but the fact that in many of our countries and our cities, urban planning hasn't really attention to green spaces um, um, you know locking ourselves indoors all the time is not going to work we need safe spaces for us to kind of you know move about in even during this time you know there, there's evidence to suggest that you can move safely outdoors if you have enough space so simple thing like in the future planning around 
space and movement and um, access to recreation. Um, you know, you can't block off all the beaches to select persons. If we have you know, more enough access for, for everyday Jamaicans to access the coastline safely and orderly, perhaps we wouldn't necessarily, you know, it would be easier for us to relax recreational activities like going to the coast. But because so many of our coast, so much of our coastline is locked away to, you know, private entities, that's not a possibility. So again, you know, a simple, simple examples like agriculture, recreation, um, and knowledge exchange, these are part of the solutions moving forward. And they, know they won't only apply to in kind of dealing with COVID, but just generally moving forward. You bring up a really good point because at the heart, and this is where I speak a lot to the mind and heart relationship when it comes to conservation, because at the end of the day, if you are from a community and you do not have access to your coastlines, which I know in many of the bigger island cities where the hotels and the very elite uh, housing neighborhoods, uh, gated communities to dominate the coastline, many of our, mem our community members in the inner city cannot have, do not have access to the beaches. And if you do not have access to the beaches or to our environment, you cannot develop the emotional connection mm -hmm. with that environment that is a critical like, aspect of us creating and even having, because when we talk about the environment and conservation, and I think this is where it becomes uh, complex for people because we're talking about behavioral change. I am trying to inspire you who has developed these habits over the expanse of your life to change your behavior because it's in light of something that's going to come in the future. And if you are not invested, I always talk about whether it's you want to quit smoking or trying to lose weight, you can intellectually know as much as you want that smoking isn't good or that you shouldn't be eating that chocolate. But at the end of the day, if you're not emotionally convicted if you don't have the willpower the internal belief in yourself that you can create that change it's not going to happen and so while yes the science is an, a very important aspect of driving this work forward we also have to connect emotionally with the environment and we have to inspire our community members to to help everyone understand that they have a place and a voice and the ability to create the change that we need to see all right, thank you. Now we're going to pivot a little bit. Um, we know that the 1st of June, a couple of days ago, was the start of the 2020 Atlantic hurricane season. Um, and considering this is coming up, would you say that we as a region are in a state of preparedness, especially since we are still grappling with the impacts of COVID? And Nikita, I'm going to start with you because I know that um, you had experience last year with Hurricane Dorian. So I'm sure you can definitely speak to this. Oh, this is, uh, this is such a hard conversation because it's about looking ourselves in the mirror and acknowledging that we are not prepared for this hurricane season. That if we are in the path, which is quite possible, of even a hurricane one or two, category one or two, let alone something of uh, the size of Hurricane Dorian, we run the very real risk of more lives being lost. You know, in our northern Bahamas right now, uh, our communities don't have electricity and water still. So, and, and this is what I share with people. I'm like, this is what the climate crisis looks like, is that there was a, uh, a climate crisis, a hurricane, and our country was scrambling to respond and to try and get back to where we are, were, let alone move forward. Uh, and then an, and a global pandemic comes, 
that completely destabilized us. And here we are, I think we're on the third name storm for the season and it's only the first week of June. Uh, and we're not prepared in my, I mean, and so, no, we are not prepared. And I think what we have to do now, and this is really where I believe the role of the international community is imperative, because immediately after Hurricane Dorian, the Cat Island Conservation Institute did a survey of Bahamians looking at what they uh, needed to prepare for future storms. One was the hurricane plan, the second was hurricane shelters, the third was access to resources, so like money. Um, what we saw in Hurricane Dorian was that our designated shelters collapsed and people in the middle of the storm had to run out. And now I live in a community where I might, my house is uh, 400 meters away from the water. My designated hurricane shelter is 200 meters between me and the ocean in a flood zone, right? So, so we're not prepared. And so while there's no way that the adequate hurricane shelters are going to be built for this hurricane season, what we have to do is I think it's a two-part pronged approach. How do we ensure that members in our community are as prepared as possible going into this hurricane season? Maybe things like ensuring people have life vests and that we have first aid training so that we can try and barely survive and then we have to ensure that there is there are structures on every single island in the Bahamas or in, likewise in the, the Caribbean to be able to house people and you add the layer of COVID-19 and social distancing on top of that you know and now we're having the conversation in country how do we deal with hurricane shelters in with social distancing in light of COVID-19 uh, so with that the, I guess the final point that I'm going to make to on this uh, question is that it is critical when we look at uh, the international community, there are conversation about loss and damages. This is what makes, this is where this money needs to go to. When I saw that uh, Prime Minister Mia Motley spoke to debt alleviation within the region, this is what needs to happen. Because we do not have, our countries do not have the financial resources to one recover, let alone rebound. And in the state of the Bahamas, and I know in many other Caribbean islands are like this, is that our GDP is artificially inflated because we have so much foreign investment. And so while most granting uh, agencies use the World Bank ranking for small island nations, uh, the Bahamas is considered a high income country and therefore we don't qualify for a lot of the aid. So we are in a, a dire situation and it's about how do we collectively do what we can on the ground, but we, and this is where I really believe as a region, we have to work together and it has to be unified because we need to bring in the resources to allow us to prepare. And that, that's money. Uh, Mrs. Jones or Dr. Edwards, any comments on hurricane I, I just want to say, um, having spent a great part of my career working in, in the whole area of disaster management, it's extremely troubling. And um, I, I will be the first to admit that I really am scared. I'm scared for each one of the countries. I'm scared for each one of the regions. And, and Nikita, several years ago, I was working with the Caribbean Hotel Association and, and really training right through the region on, on hurricane preparedness. I had done a manual and went through, and, and this was where I was introduced to Cat Island because in fact, um, we had done some training in, in the Bahamas and, and it was early, it might have been June, it was early season and some of the Cat Island members were over, um, I can't remember where we had it, 
um, but they came over and they were very worried. And shortly after, perhaps two weeks after, there was a hurricane and Cat Island was, was affected. I don't know if you can remember that or if you have heard about it, but I, I just can't remember the year or even the name of the storm. But it, it really just heightens the point I was making about our vulnerability. And we, we, we have to do um, the best that we can by, again, there are some things we have to, to, to provide. And as you indicated, persons have not fully recovered. And we've seen this in, in some other islands that even had effects before last year. So we are in trouble. We are in a lot of trouble. And with the pandemic and, and how we maintain social distancing, a lot of its shelters are not, are not adequate for a regular situation. Um, you know, we still use schools, we don't have purpose-built centers and so on, but, um, you know, it, it, it is a worrying time. And, and we have to look at the, the critical factors we have to, to understand. And even to, to have your shelter collapse, one of the first things you do is, is to examine the structural integrity of your, your shelters. But so often uh, we don't have the resources, either the human resource or the or the financial resource to do what is necessary. But we can't put our hands down because again, mm -hmm. we are responsible. And a lot of the international agencies, they're, they're suffering from fatigue because disasters are happening all over and the pandemic disaster and is, is something that, that we're facing. And one of the things that I'm, I'm pushing for in, in that some of our countries have really stepped up to deal with this environmental disaster. In the case of Jamaica, we have activated the Disaster Risk Management Act, which had been sitting since 2015. Now we have activated it. Um, why can't we now use that? We activated it for health. We need to activate it for the other aspects of, of um, our sustainable development or sustainable prosperity to ensure that we really take these issues into account and not just treat it as something that belongs to the disaster agency mm -hmm. and that you only pay attention when there's hurricanes. Yeah. Okay. Um, you want to add anything, Dr. Edwards? Nothing to add, nothing okay. to add. Um, so following up on that, do you think the stakeholders of our tourism industry do enough to protect our natural resources? So we know that most of the Caribbean islands, we depend heavily on tourism for um, economic development. So do you think that the tourism in, um, industry actually helps to protect our resources such as beaches? Because these are the same resources that actually earn them a profit. And then what can we actually do to hold our policymakers accountable. I think this is a problem across the board. How can we actually hold our policymakers accountable to um, sort of ensure that these tourism investors are actually not destroying the environment at the same time? Well, that, that one is a hot button topic. Um, and because, I, now because I'm no longer um, an environmental consultant, <laughs> um, working on behalf of some of these um, entities, where we're trying our best to kind of hold them back and guide them and steer them and do the right thing. Um, I, I would say in general, the, the way, certainly for Jamaica and, and other places that really rely heavily on this kind of beach tourism model, and, and, and I even go further to say the all-inclusive um, concept. In fact, was it 11 years ago, it was probably one of my first op-eds that was published in the Glean I wrote on the unsustainable nature of 
this approach. Now, Mark, you, you know, I think the tourism product has room for a variety of, um, you know, products, one of which is the all-inclusive, but I think our over-reliance on it um, is causing a problem, you know, in any other kind of um, environmental industry when you, you know, you have the same kind of industry kind of packed up along the coast. The, the current capacity, we have, I think we have exceeded or probably just about exceeded our current capacity for that type of um, coastal tourism product. And I think the way in many instances that some of these, uh, or the access to the shoreline, which is what I mentioned before, the, the way our government deals with that and um, how cheap it is, I think, um, even though these, you know, these properties are expensive to build, uh, but, you know, we get kind of tax incentives to kind of build like this. I think the model, the model, so again, I'm not pointing a finger, you know, like a particular hotel. I think the way the approach of, you know, giving, and I use that in quote, giving um, access to the coast um, to, to, to build these large properties right in the coast, um, in, you know, digging up seagrass that, that um, affects sand accretion. So therefore we're losing our beaches is not sustainable. Um, what I think we are able to do, and you know, I, I will be honest, my PhD was written on a sustainable financing approach to um, managing our coral reefs and our beaches. And what I did look at was a, a tax, an environmental tax that could provide the support to not only deal with the beaches, but more than enough um, support environmental conservation across the island. Um, this, um, my results came up before I think the, the TEF was put into place, but the problem with TEF is that the money goes, you know, the tourism enhancement fund, that money goes into a central repository and the way you access it is, is different and obviously it, it sometimes it goes to more tourist focused things. So I think a way that we can, we can do policy that ensures that a portion of the tourism, the tourism tax that is levied on everybody coming to the island should be dedicated towards environmental conservation and restoration. Um, and I think that's something that young people can probably advocate for. We have a system in place. Tourists are actually willing to pay a small slice of what they're benefiting, whether it's $10 or $20. And they're even more willing if they are assured that that money is going to go towards you know, ensuring that the sea and the sun and the sun and the beautiful hillsides that they come to, to visit are in place. So I think that is one kind of very quick solution. Um, there are other ways, you know, and I mentioned it before, there are other source sustainable tourism products, more low footprint, higher end, people spend more money and, and perhaps even more of that money actually filters out into the wider economy. Because our tourism product, again, unfortunately, suffers from leakage where 75% and upwards of the profits are repatriated to some account abroad. And I'm sorry, even some of our indigenous brands, you know, that they have their, their home banks elsewhere. So I think those are some of the issues that would lead me to say that the all-inclusive tourism model isn't sustainable and we need to think differently about it. And see, I am very long-winded about that one because I'm, I'm passionate about, you know, a better way to do it. And again, as I said, the all-inclusive product is part of the package. People want that, but it shouldn't be the thing that we rely solely on for economic development.
Absolutely. I, I completely agree. And I am going to ask our listeners to just entertain me for a second as I, I go on this little segue. But again, going back, I, I believe that we need to redefine tourism so that tourism benefits the, those of us who are in the region. And as uh, Dr. Edwards spoke to, we are not the owners of our tourism product right now. Uh, and most of the, that money goes outside to hedge funds located outside of the country. Um, what we need to, I think, take a minute to pause and reflect on is that we have not been negotiating from a power, uh, a position of power. I do not believe that we inherently believe in ourselves and really value ourselves. Uh, I believe that there is a, a huge issue when it comes to internal self-love of, of in each and every individual. And because individually we have so much self-hate, we do not really believe in our ability to, to translate that into an alternative tourism product. And so when we are at the table, the negotiating table with these foreign investors who are coming in to design these mega resorts, we are coming from such a position of desperation because we need jobs. And this is how in the Bahamas usually it's presented, oh, 150 jobs here. But again, what, what are the quality of jobs that we're receiving? They're not wealth and uh, capacity building jobs. These are maids and bartenders, which there's nothing wrong with doing that. But it's also, I think, about there being a choice, an option, and about having the person who's choosing the career path has an option to go into that. Uh, and so when we are welcoming and inviting investors to work in our countries, I believe we have to become very, very clear about what is the tourism product that we want. And uh, to answer the original question, absolutely not. Are the people who are benefiting from our natural resources are not contributing? And it's because we have not set a high enough standard. We have been okay with what they have been giving us. And this is when it has to change. Because all these cruise ships that go and dock in every single one of our islands, at minimum, they should all have ocean observation resources on them so that we're learning about the state of our oceans, let alone when it comes to the amount of garbage that they're dumping in our waters or offloading on our islands. We must hold ourselves to a higher standard, it's just kind of like dating, that we have to set the stage of how it is and who, how we want to be treated and what the terms of engagement are. And unless we're clear about that, we're not going to get what we want and we are going to continue to be taken advantage of. Powerful. Yes, powerful statement. And in view of the fact that the cruise industry is so heavily dependent on the Caribbean, they hold us, it's a kind of a divide and rule but they are dependent on the Caribbean. And if the Caribbean would come together and stay together, because what happens is that very often they will go in and, and then one of the islands will, will break. Uh, but now is a time because the cruise industry has basically collapsed mm -hmm. uh, with, with this pandemic. Uh, what can they do? And it is all about how you have several people huddled together in this, in this space, which again comes back to the business of environmental health in interior spaces as well as in the external environment and 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 so what can we offer and what should we be putting forward to the cruise industry and there may be one or two because this is a time perhaps that they may be entertaining new ideas and and ideas that that relate to how we preserve 
the, the very resource on which on which they depend. So yeah. let's see what we can do there. And if anything, to build on that, if we ever needed, or if our policymakers and decision makers ever needed justification for putting in these environmental taxes on the tourists, I mean, COVID-19 has just given, like, put out the red carpet where we now need the extra money. You know, no tourist who's coming to spend time and enjoy our sun, sand, and sea, as we call it, is going to think twice about giving, whether it's an extra $20 or $70, to help benefit from what we they know that we depend fully on. So it's about us not letting this crisis go to waste and really using the and creating the opportunities and uh, not being victims of this crisis, but arising as uh, as leaders. I guess. From <laughs> arising from the ashes. There we go. <laughs> the phoenix. <laughs> right. Following up on that, Matthew has a question. What are the kinds of policies that you would like to see to incentivize not just tourism but businesses are as a whole to consider sustainability more in their strategies. So in short, how can policymakers direct businesses to take a more proactive and long-term approach to sustainability? And we actually have a more, we have an economic chat coming up where I'm sure we're going to delve into this more, but just what kind of policies, what can we, how can policymakers sort of effect this sort of change? Let me jump on it and then hand it over to my, my former MD. Um, you know, because she, she's the one that had, you know, like was one of the leaders in coining the term environment is good business. Um, you know, part of that instant incentivization and part of that, that conversation about what is it for me? Um, if you can show these businesses, schools, the way we, you know, government buildings, if you can show them that doing things differently, whether it's, you know, integrating solar, whether it is, you know, like taking the initial cost to cut down on, you know, plastic use, you can actually show in the long term that it's not only better for your bottom line, but it's better for the environment. So I think the incentivization and, you know, I'm going to leave the tourism piece alone because that's mm -hmm. it, the, the tax, the tourism tax is one kind of economic incentive to change behavior. Um, another one is actually making people pay for the actual mm -hmm. cost of the environment that they're causing. So that's another incentivization. It can be a carrot and it can be a stick. So there, there are those things. But I think really kind of getting it across as a society that you know whenever you hear the term environment and people really go switch to cleaning up rubbish it's more than just yeah. cleaning up rubbish it's you know, a change in our lifestyle it's a, it's a change in our consumption pattern it's a change in how we deal with waste now organizing you know really getting composting going and how that relates to either a backyard garden or cottage industry selling compost to somebody else who has a space. So I, so I think those, those short snippets, again, in any kind of you know, sector, there are ways that you can show that, listen, if, you, if we do these things differently, it's not adding a cost, we're not being tree huggers. In the end, your bottom line is actually improved with the benefit of kind of a, a, a better environment for, for, for all. Mrs. Jones, you might want to. Um, yeah, that was, Peter, you have said it because it's it's all about the bottom line uh, for most people, and that's that's the quickest way to get people to move. What? How does it affect my pocket? And and this is why energy energy management. We we, we have a number of people putting in solar. They they're not doing it so much because of the environment, but because they see that it it makes a difference to the to the bottom line. So we we had coined the term eco efficiency. Also, you know, how do we use our 
resources in a more efficient way. Water is a critical factor for us with, with climate change. And, and, you know, we in Jamaica are about to go into another one of these, or we have started the lockoffs because you have a prolonged drought. Um, so how do we incentivize? We should incentivize persons to, uh, and, and it can happen at, at many, many different levels. And we need to begin to think about it and put it forward because it's not going to happen with a with a magic wand and as you see the carrot and the stick and yes environmental solutions we we really started promoting the environment as good business um because if you really protect the resources and not protect in terms of being tree hogging but if you use your resources in an efficient way then it redounds to your bottom line and several years ago we were talking about triple bottom line and and so on we're talking about waste management. Now we're using new phrases. You know, we're talking about circular economy and, and, and new things, but it, it really comes back to the same thing. We have been given an endowment and we are human beings. We have to live in, in um, concert with what nature has provided for us. And if we abuse it, um, we, we, we reap the whirlwind, such as we are doing now with with the global pandemic. And we need to make more of a link between these crises. For instance, we had throughout the Caribbean, we had the business of, of chicken gunya several years ago, which really created major problems, productivity for health. That's, that's a climate change. We didn't really use the hook sufficiently well to say we're having increasing vectors because we have changing climatic patterns and we're going to have more of it. We had dengue before. Can we use these hooks and can we then say to our policymakers, if you really, and also our corporate sector and our civil society, if you really want to make a change, let's see how we can encourage persons to, to get this going. And I'll just jump in quickly in terms of another example of how big thinking and shifting the way we do business um, I mentioned transportation and, and folks in Jamaica would understand that, you know, there's a lot of lost productivity when we're sitting in traffic on the Mandela Highway or other places. Two things, COVID has shown us that for some of us uh, who are fortunate to work from home, ways we think about working, teleworking, a mixture of, you know, you, you don't have to go every single day into the office. That's one way to reduce our carbon footprint and save gas. Again, also, you know, proper investment in public um, um, transportation. Imagine a, a, a monorail going from Mandela, Mandela Highway from you know Spanish Town all the way into Kingston. We're talking you know electric rails carrying people sustainably moving along reducing traffic. Again thinking differently moving forward something like COVID can, and can help us. Another thing is pollution. A lot of times you know, we, we get placed with the individual responsibility, which we should have for kind of disposing of plastic bottles and so on. But what about the advocacy to our manufacturers and, and the people importing these products to, to shift with either the products they're using or find better ways to manufacture these things that, that, that the responsibility isn't passed on to the consumer to, to, to get rid of your waste. And, and there's been enough documentation to show that certainly the plastic cleanup campaigns in the United States we're heavily funded by the plastic industry to shift people's consciousness on, oh, it's my problem, I have to clean it up, rather than a two-pronged solution where, yes, I have to do better about um, getting rid of the plastic I use. Some of it is unavoidable, especially now with COVID. But also, 
putting pressure on manufacturers and governments to force or provide incentives, incentives yeah. economic incentives for people to retool mm -hmm. so that we're producing packaging and products that are beneficial to the environment. And learn some of those best practices from elsewhere because some of it, some of it is being implemented um, elsewhere. Mm -hmm. and, and Peter, just to say, um, the monorail is a, is a great idea, but why don't we just start with trying to promote the, use the electric buses oh, and yep. there's an initiative yep. there. Let's push for them to, to, to develop that and not just here, but elsewhere in the, and, in the region. And, then, and this is where local science people can be trained to build batteries. I, you know, I have a colleague who used to have a battery company. We can build some of that infrastructure. We don't have to import every single raw material. We have the capacity to, to provide these solutions for ourselves, not just importing um, everything outside. Uh, I just, two comments to add to this great conversation is, I believe this is one area where as a region, we really need to work closer and stronger together, especially if we're dealing with uh, these multilateral or these multinational corporations. Because, you know, things like whether it is Coke or Pepsi or any of these uh, bottling companies, you know, I had a conversation with uh, the head of with someone in the who worked in Coke in the Bahamas, and his justification for why he wouldn't speak was that, or what what power do I have when the Bahamas market is so small? Was his rationale, um, and so I just kind of left it there, you know. And so, it, but it it made me think about okay, well, also the entire region, you know, these are things that we can regionally put pressure on because these you brought up a really good point dr edwards about the role of uh these corporations in driving climate change and contributing to the pollution that's causing climate change and so yes the individual action is important but at the end of the day for some of us tiny islands we can adapt until we want but the fun there's fundamental change that has to happen and that is beyond the shores of our island nation uh, and so I think being very strategic about the policy and uh, the policy action that we want to implement is hugely important. Thank you for that, Nikita. Very, very passionate and instructive closeout from our guests. Thank you all for joining. Uh, we are at the end. So um, it was a very riveting conversation. I have learned a lot and it's a lot of information to distill. But I just want us to leave um, this conversation with some, some key thoughts um, in mind. We started off by remind, by, with a reminder um, saying that we are part of a collective global ecosystem. And that resonated so well with me because I remember working um, in a part of St. Catherine earlier this week and I took a picture. And what I thought of it was that nature really does exist in a balance. And as Mrs. Jones rightfully said, once we disrupt that balance, we are going to reap the repercussions of that because nature is going to want to restore the balance, right? Um, but notwithstanding, given the, the small changes that we've seen as it relates to improvement um, in our environment, um, I think we can all agree that there is hope for us as it relates to environmental restoration. But however, as Mrs. said, we have to be intentional about the approach um, in terms of how we will get this done. We also need to move towards a more sustainable way of existing, um, which 
includes a number of things. Um, somebody had pointed out in the chat about um, underscoring what Mrs. Jones has said, including environmental considerations in all aspects of your economic planning, right? And this can be done by highlighting the value of the environment to business sustainability, right? Um, so Nikita had said also that we need to reflect on the value of science and how we use it for development. And that's a very powerful point um, in highlighting our need to shift the narrative on how we discuss environmental issues, um, leading us to reimagine our education system and how we can make it culturally relevant. Because without that, then we will forever be at the behest of the more developed countries. Um, also, um, the last point from me is, it was a very good point um, from, I don't remember exactly who said it. I think it was Nikita as well. The Caribbean needs to be leading its own efforts, sorry, our own efforts <laughs> in climate adaptation strategies, right? We need to have a clear and coherent message that we are all attuned with. And also the language barrier that exists when we communicate with community members in terms of the climate science, the environmental science, that has to be broken down. And we'll also look at that more when we talk about the human dimensions of a pandemic in a few weeks to come. So those were just some takeaway points from me. I'm sure other persons would have gotten a lot of other things. So again, just from me, thank you to all our guests and thank you to all our participants. It was a very good chat. Over to you, Eleanor. Right, so before we go, we mentioned at the top of this that we had a special announcement to make. Um, and I'm going to invite Daniel Nemard from ESL to talk a bit about what this surprise is. Hi, everyone. I, before I announce it, I just want to say that I'm now a member of the Church of Jones, Child, Roll, and Edwards. I was here <laughs> snapping and tapping and raising the roof. I am sold on everything that was said, so thank you for that. But really, what I'm here to say is that today on World Environment Day, we're actually launching our nature photography contest between, in partnership with Environmental Solutions Limited and the Jamaica Climate Change Youth Council. And we want all of you to follow us on social media. I've dropped all the handles in the chat, so go ahead and follow us. Uh, to enter the competition, we want you to be inspired by nature after hearing all these wonderful things that our guests have said about how valuable uh, nature and ecosystems are to our livelihood. So go out, be inspired, take photographs and post them to your social media. Um, make sure you put a caption. You have to follow our social media pages. Ensure that you use the social media hashtags that we're using, which is keep nature beautiful, hashtag through the lens and hashtag climate in COVID. And of course, the most important part, because we do it for the love and the likes, you need to go ahead and get your friends and family, colleagues, everyone to like your photographs. And voting will be done from now until the 15th of June, which is Nature Photography Day, if you weren't aware. And of course, there's prizes and surprises. So we'll be giving away what we call our sustainable swag bag. Um, I won't give you too much about what's in the swag bag because it's a surprise. Uh, surprise. Um, but I'll tell you one item, which is um, a mask. So. <laughs> Not just any mask, you know, a cool mask. A cool mask. <laughs> mask all right so 
follow our social media, enter our nature photography contest, and be in the runnings to win some fantastic prizes. Don't forget to take some underwater photos if you can. Yes, yes of course, please. please. Yes, of yes. course, absolutely. We're looking for Ridge to Reef all the way. Yes, <laughs> yes. Mario, do you want to mention anything about the UWI conference this afternoon? In a bit. Okay. All right. Um, so thank you. Thank you, Daniel. Our next COVID chat session will be on June 19, and we'll be talking about food security. So the topic is when hunger strikes, food security and sustainability. And that's a two-part chat because we have to eat. And the only way to ensure our survival is if we have food. Um, so tune in for that. And we hope to see you all there. If you missed some of today's discussion or you want to rewatch it or share it with our friends, we'll be uploading videos to our various social media pages. And reminder, we have a podcast coming soon. Um, so don't forget to follow us at the pages in the chat.